millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Last time we spoke, you were building a guitar. Uh, yes, I did build a guitar, and I have since sold it for charity, um, which was uh, a bit of a sadness, actually. But at the same time, there was uh, my friends at Way Out were in dire need of money, and it turned out people wanted to buy my uh, shitty guitar that I built. So um, <laughs> and it all worked out for the best. How long did it take in the end to kind of put the whole thing together? Um, longer than I had anticipated originally. In fact, it took me two goes. The first one, first, because the kits cost about 100 quid, and this was first lot lockdown when I like everyone really needed something to do so the first one um, I, I I had to sort of abandon halfway through because I fucked it up so that one's currently a garden ornament um, <laughs> but the second one yeah I mean I, I don't know the thing is there's all the kind of spraying and sanding so the actual amount of time you spend working on it is not the same as how long it takes to build if you see what I mean because you've got to like leave it to dry for ages and then do another coat and blah 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 is it something you can kind of let your mind wander while you're doing, or do you very much just have to be focused on the job? I very much have to be focused on the job at hand. Um, I mean, it's funny, like like everybody, I sort of needed lockdown projects this time last year, and I sort of started on two. One of them was building a guitar, and the other one was learning how to kind of mix audio properly. And um, the the second of those two has actually sort of become like a second career for me at this point in time and building guitars I will leave to the experts well I think because did you mix the audio on Bean's last album I did, did yeah. Right? yeah I yeah, yeah. I mean that one so basically I've always had sort of one foot in the mixing and well, well in the audio world because I make records quite a lot for myself but um, first lockdown I started really diving into how to mix properly and how to you know engineer and how to produce and all that kind of thing and um, coincidentally Jay then called me up and said would I be interested and working on a record with him and I said actually yes I really really would so that one he basically came out my house and tracked guitar and vocals to click and then I wrote all the arrangements and recorded all the arrangements and sent them back to him and he was like wow <laughs> sounds, sounds like a record um, so he was very pleased uh, with the end result of that um, but yeah and I've, I'm mixed Petney's record and I'm now I've, I've moved house built the studio and I'm now knee deep in audio it's interesting because I had Beans on the podcast a couple months back now maybe hmm. coming up on a couple months and it's fascinating because we're on here to talk about England keep my bones and I understand he was the one who insisted you finish glory hallelujah yeah that is a true story yeah um i uh, jay, jay and i have toured together endlessly and um 
one of my favourite bits of touring, and I, I'm very nostalgic for all of it at the moment. But you know, there's that moment kind of late at night when the bus is left and you're driving, but you're still up, and you kind of sit around and share a drink with an old friend. And we were doing that somewhere on a UK tour when Jay was open for me, and he was riding on my bus, and um, I was just we would we were a bit drunk, and I just started playing him a few snippets of ideas that I had lying around that I hadn't quite finished. One of which was the chorus to Glory Hallelujah. Which I sort of I, I I often have this one of the, one of the things about being a solo artist is you don't really have people to bounce ideas off you know what I mean uh, or at least not not immediately and uh, I I couldn't decide whether it was good or bad or whether it was worth pursuing I suppose and I played it for him and he immediately said you have to finish that song if you don't finish that song you're a coward kind of thing <laughs> and it was just like oh okay um, so uh, yeah it was uh, uh, he he was definitely the catalyst for that so did you just have the chorus at that point. Yeah, I just had the chorus. Um, I mean, I think I, you know, in the, I find that songwriting's a bit like, um, there, there's elements of it that's a bit like a crossword puzzle in the, by which I mean that your subconscious keeps working on something, even if you're not consciously thinking about it. So whilst I only had the chorus, I think I had the beginnings of where it would also go, at least lyrically, if I was to pursue it further. Yeah, it's almost like your guide when you then turn your eye to working on the verses. You kind yeah. of have that solid ground there for it. Yeah, exactly. And there was just sort of something there that was sort of th- mulling over what other statements might need to be included in the song, as it were. Uh, I mean, my other reservation about that song is that my grandfather was a priest and um, my mum is very religious um, and I have no issue with this. Um, but, I, you know, he he. my grandfather died in 2010, I suppose it must have been, um, after a long innings, as they say. Um, and, and I think that subconsciously there was a part of me that probably wasn't going to put that song out whilst he was still with us because I think he would have disapproved. <laughs> <laughs> Not very punk, that statement, I know, but it's true. <laughs> Were you religious all growing up? Uh, I was raised religious. Uh, I'm not sure it ever really took. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I uh, I started listening to kind of Black Sabbath and um, Marilyn Manson and stuff like that when I was about 11, and uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> it's interesting because we kind of touched upon it a little bit there, but one of the kind of key themes of the record is this idea of national identity and what that means yeah, to you yeah. and how it kind of relates to everyone. Yeah. Has the way your Englishness and your national, identi- national identity, has the way you see that in your songwriting changed with time? Yeah, I think it probably has. I mean, one of the big sort of driving forces behind Ingram Keep My Bones is it was at a period in my career where I'd first started touring the US hard, uh, but I'd done quite a lot of US touring just on my own, or at least, you know, I'd be the kind of solo act on another bill, riding in somebody else's van or in somebody else's bus or whatever it might be. And the thing about that is that it meant, I, you know, I'd have an American tour manager and then American bands and American fans. And I'm the only English person anywhere in the building. And, and it just, you know, that is an op- that, that makes you reflect a little bit, I think, on, you know, what it is that means that I understand the rules of cricket and no one else in the room does. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I hope it was clear then and is clear now that I don't, like, ascribe any moral value to national identity. I don't think it makes anyone better or worse where they're from. I suspect that looking back, I probably could have been a little bit more forthright about that statement. It just seems obvious to me, you know, uh, that th- th- there is no moral content to where you, which patch of earth you happen to be raised in. Not even born in my case. I wasn't born in England. Um, and, uh, where were you born? I was born in Bahrain in the Middle East. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't have any memories of it because I was about six months old when my parents came home, but my dad used to work out there. 
so anyway but yeah so i mean in terms of how it's changed since then i mean the, the main thing i'd say is just that like i kind of did that do you know what i mean it was like it was kind of funny because the record was was a big success for me and it was it was a time when a lot of people encountered my music for the first time when i did the next record that wasn't about england there were some people who were like well what the fuck like where are the songs about england and it was just like but i, but I did that do you know what I mean? And now, now I'm going to talk about something else. I mean, I found it a topic to be interesting enough to. It's it's not a concept record. It, it's just sort of a theme that emerged in quite a few songs at that period of my writing career. But like, I don't need to talk about it all day every day. I don't think it's that interesting. <laughs> I remember you saying as well that you thought Balthazar Impresario should have been on that record. Was that oh. as a, a result of that? No, well, no, I did that that the the whole business of choosing which tracks go on an album, and indeed the running order of an album, is a fine art, and usually one that's done in quite a panicked fashion at the end of a session. Do you know what I mean? I I look back now and can't quite imagine what the fuck I was thinking not putting that song on the record. Not least because um, one of the alternative titles for the album that I had lying around was Ghosts of Vaudeville, which is a lyric from that song which would then, of course, have necessitated that song being on the fucking album. But um, <laughs> for some reason, I don't know, I just sort of made that choice. And um, I, I mean, this is not the only example of this in my um, career history where I kind of go, why the fuck isn't that song on the actual album proper? So I'm clearly not very good at it. But, um, you know, I, I mean, we live in a world now where people can get hold of whatever songs they want to do. But at the same time, I do sort of believe in albums as holistic um, pieces of art. So I'm slightly frustrated by that in retrospect. It's because it changes the kind of context of the song itself when you put it in it, with that badge. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I'm, I'm old fashioned. I like to sit down and listen to an album and, um, and sort of feel it as a contiguous work of art. Was that something you did ahead of the re-release of this? When was the last time you kind of sat down and listened to it in full? Yeah, I mean, uh, ahead of the re-release, I mean, I thought about this album in full last year when I was doing all of the venue shows that I was doing online. Um, I played through albums in full. And it was an interesting experience doing that because some records I really, really needed to go back and like relearn some songs because they'd fallen off the radar, as it were. England was a record where I didn't really need to do that. I had to, you know, sit and think for a minute about one or two of them. But like it, most of the tracks of this record have remained going concerns in my set list um, in the in the last decade. And that's I think that's a good sign. I think that's a cool thing. But uh, but yeah, I mean, mainly mainly for the re-release thing, I kind of was listening to like the extra material that we put on the that we put on the um, release as well, which I found very interesting. In a, if that's not a hugely solipsistic thing to say, but yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because you said that you know some a lot of them have been mainstays in the set. Has the way you think about them in any way changed when the context of the greater world, especially Britain and America too, and yeah. a lot of different countries, we seem to be moving towards this kind of patriotic thing? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think well, that's a, that's a very interesting topic because. Um, Yes, uh, obviously the world was doing slightly different things in 2011 politically and we hadn't yet lived through the calamity of 2016 and all the rest of it. And like, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, like I sort of, there are certain constituencies who talk about national identity in a way that becomes nationalism, uh, which for me is not something I'm interested in or have much time for. You know, I, and I and I'm not. Would, would I have released this record in 2017, or at least would I have talked about it in the same way? Possibly not. Um, not necessarily because I feel differently about it, but just because context does matter, as you say. And and um, I don't wish to be associated with 
certain strands in our politics. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's almost tainted. Yeah, that yeah. Idea so of patriotism. It, it, it patriotism is. in itself, it's a very natural thing to be proud of where you're from. It, it is. I mean, I, I hesitate to even call this record patriotic per se because uh, I think it's more like there are a lot of people who sort of maintain that they there is no such thing as like an authentic English national identity, which just strikes me as a silly statement because of course there is. In the same way that there's a Bangladeshi national identity and that there's a you know a belgian national identity these things don't necessarily have to be good or or more they don't have to be important but like of course of course there is such a thing and uh, and i've found that interesting at that moment in my life but like i yeah it's not supposed to be triumphalist i suppose is the point it's interesting as well you know we we're kind of talking there about the last decade and the things that have changed mm. One of the things that happened last year is we had this kind of palpable sense of living through history. We knew that what was happening would be written about in years to come as we sure. were experiencing it in the present moment. Mm. Were there any other times over the last decade you felt that? No, I mean, I, I would say that um, as somebody who is tediously interested in history, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think that... A very strong feeling I have is that we... We, and when I say... I mean, we... People who grew up in the West, let's say, in the comfortable West, have lived through a quite an interesting and slightly bizarre holiday from history, in a way. Do you know what I mean? Through most of our kind of like adult life. I was born in 1981, like obviously the Cold War happened, but like, you know, my sort of coming age, the 90s and the, uh, and even the sort of 2000s were a sort of weirdly... Breezy time. Yeah, well, just kind of um, calm time in the West. Of course, there was 9-11, there's the war in Iraq, there's all this kind of thing going on. But in terms of society... Uh, in the West. It was a pretty sort of chilled out time. And now to face the kind of rise of various movements um, and political identities and fascism or whatever you want to call it, it is, is kind of shocking. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, I, th I, f I, feel, I feel very strongly that from 26 onwards, for the first time in my adult life, I know what being a subject of history feels like. Uh, or it was possibly even an object of history is what I mean. You know, it's, it's like, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a new feeling. I, had the, I was thinking about this the other day, like I was having a bit of a morose moment with regard to the pandemic and all that, which I think we're all allowed every now and again. And um, I, I was just like thinking, God, it's so annoying that like, you know, things happen in the world that fucked up my ongoing life plan. And then I thought to myself, but that's how life has been for pretty much everyone everywhere forever. Do you know what I mean? And the fact that it's shocking to me is interesting to me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I think that we were very privileged to live, uh, to be to grow up in the time we did in the, in the kind of um, comfortable West. Yeah, it's been a very... Um kind of bring us back to reality i suppose experience mm. right exactly we're not used to it do you know what i mean and to sort of feel like there are historical forces and watching sort of you know the rise of trump or whatever it might be has been really uh, a rise and hopefully now fall as well but it's been very strange because i have absolutely no agency over it whatsoever and and i can hold opinions about it but who gives a fuck and and i think that's quite humbling possibly in quite a useful way yeah because there's no point in worrying about things you can't control well, and also it's sort of it's it's quite um, it's quite it's good for the ego to realise that you're not that important. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it comes to your own work, you've always said that you're your own harshest critic. Does that voice enter when reflecting with a re-release too? 
It, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the reasons, I, there are a number of reasons why I don't often listen back to records that I've made. One of them is that while you're making a record, you listen to a record more times than is imaginable, which means that by the time you finish it, there's a fair degree of like, fuck me, I'm never going to listen to that again. Um, so, uh, um, but also, yeah, I mean, it's it, T.S. Eliot said of poetry that it's never finished, it's only ever abandoned. And that's an extreme way of putting it, but there's, you know, there is definitely a sort of a creative feeling that, um, you, you just have to kind of let it go at a certain point. There's not many things I've finished in my life where I thought, yes, that's perfect. You sort of feel like, well, that's, that's as good as I can get it right now. And, um, if I listen back to records, I, I get very sort of critical and it can be as critical about anything like the kick drum sound annoys me. Do you know what I mean? Or the, um, uh, that turnaround in verse two doesn't make any sense. There's the age old thing of like, once you start touring a record, you iron out some kinks and that you didn't have time to do in the studio. And that can be as simple as like, a rhythmic bit of phrasing or something like that that you figure out a better way of doing you do that because you then you play it like 25 times in front of an audience and it just kind of flows out and you go oh yeah that should go like that and there are quite a few instances where if i listen back to recorded versions of stuff i'm quite surprised at how it goes in certain places because the songs have evolved it over time but then i mean i think that you know songs are supposed to be living breathing creations and i think it's both allowable and indeed good for them to go to other places um, over time. I don't think that they should be captured in aspect forever, really. I mean, that's one of the things about the recording process that's slightly artificial is you're pinning a butterfly, if you see what I mean. They they continue to evolve and grow. I mean, less not as much with Inking My Bone stuff, but like there's a track called Photosynthesis on Love Iron Song, which the way we play it live is so different from the recorded version. Not like structurally or anything, but just the feel and the arrangement. And that wasn't a conscious decision. It's just I've played that song a hundred million times since it came out in 2008 you know so it's it, these things change and grow does that also come back to what we were saying about context though as well the fact that when you put it in that set and what it's surrounded with it needs to take on a slightly different shape in order to have maximum impact yes i think so and it also you know you're one is allowed to change and grow as a person an artist and all that kind of thing i mean this is a very very minor thing but like it sort of occurred to me many years later that the there's one line in I Still Believe where I sort of like call out the saints, as it were, uh, which obviously is slightly <laughs> melodramatic, <laughs> but like, um, you know, the rock and roll saints. And, and I'd sort of named three white guys. And I'm, I was aware at the time, and I'm more aware now, having learned more of like, that's a pretty reductionist view of the history of rock and roll. And, and it slightly bothers me that it's um, uh, Jerry Lee, Johnny, Jerry Lee and Johnny, it says. So Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash, those are two important figures. But like, it just seems a bit reductionist to me. So like, and uh, having done the No Man's Land record um, a couple of years ago, I tend now when I sing it live to say Jerry Lee and Rosetta um, because I wrote the song about Sister Rosetta Tharp who is incredibly important to the history of rock and roll. And it just makes me feel a little bit better singing that. Yeah, because about updating it for the times. Exactly. Or at least my my, my, my knowledge, my own knowledge and understanding of the world, um, <laughs> feeble as it might be. I mean, when it comes back to looking at your progression as a songwriter as well over the course of all your records, there's very much the structure and the of the songs almost seems to get simpler the songs themselves get simpler but the production pulls itself in many more directions mm. was that a progression you always foresaw in your mind or was that something that just when did you first kind of start to see that happening for you um well i mean first of all well well spotted i would say like that's the <laughs> thing that i think about and i wonder whether anybody else gives a fuck um uh i think that um I've thought about this a lot. I, I mean, first of all, to answer the question, no, it wasn't something that was like consciously planned. And I think that I try not to like consciously 
plan, if you see what I mean. I like songwriting to be quite an organic process. I like it to just kind of happen in the way that it happens. And I don't want to like pre-direct it too much, um, both in terms of broad sweeps like we're talking about now, but even just within a record, it's like, you know, In Keep My Bones ended up with that title because the songs all arrived and there was enough kind of references to England for it to make sense as a title and a, and a, a, a sort of shaping theme. But I didn't sit down to write a record about England. It just kind of emerged that way. Um, in terms of like song structuring and that kind of thing, I mean, I, I have to, I'm in two minds about it. Like on the one hand, like, yeah, some of the stuff, particularly on the first first record in particular, is the song structuring is quite a lot more complicated. Um, uh, that has kind of chilled out over time. Is that because I've kind of got better at streamlining my ideas or is it because I've got lazier at trying to put more sections into a song? Interesting debate for me. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely, like, as I've got older, I've got more interested in stuff like the songwriting of... Um, uh, Bill Withers and like Motown stuff and stuff like that, which is often militantly simple. And I find that quite powerful. And in a way, I think that there is often a case to be made that a, a few idea, very good ideas powerfully stated is better than like 8,000 half-baked ideas, if you see what I mean. But, but I don't know. I mean, there are days when I think that maybe I might consciously sit down and try and write more complicated songs again. But then again, that sort of starts feeling a bit forced. Production-wise, I mean, you know, definitely I think I've got better at that over the years. I've, I've always... It's a... It's a it is a misconception that some people have that like I started out as a solo artist and then like acquired a band over time. Like the very first recordings that I ever put out as a solo artist had like drums and organ on them. You know, like I've always been interested in other instruments being part of it. Uh, I picked up, you know, I got a band who are very good. I got better at arranging for a band. Um, I also don't want to repeat myself if I can avoid it. Um, so, you know, I want to kind of sonically take things in different directions. And often that involves different approaches to arrangement. I mean, it's interesting though, because you have this incredible work ethic, whether it be applied to the records we've just been discussing there, or to the amount of shows you play, or everything else you kind of do surrounding that. Is that something that is just applied to your creativity and your music, or do you see that manifesting itself in different aspects of your life? Um, I mean, it's ma mainly in, in terms of quote-unquote work stuff. I mean, um, I get, I, I've just got, I, I'm, I'm very sort of impatient, might be a way of putting it. But it's, it's funny, like my dad's family are all very, very sort of like impatient people. And my mum's family are all quite practical hands on people. And that's not a terrible combination, I think, in time, if you see what I mean. Like, uh, you know, you, you know, I get, I get kind of impatient and pissed off about stuff. And then I do something about it. Unlike, my dad's family. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just I, I like to get on with stuff. I don't like kind of sitting around and waiting. Sometimes that incidentally can be problematic in the sense that I often kind of rush stuff uh, and, and in all aspects of my life, you know, my wife is quite often telling me to just like fucking chill out and take it slow for a minute and just think it through. Um, uh, so it, it can be, uh, I mean, curse is too strong a word, but a blessing and a curse. But yeah, it's mainly a thing for, for, for my work. I mean, my work is so kind of all consuming that those aspects of my life that sit outside of that need to be kind of relaxed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Otherwise I'd go completely insane. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.